Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, the online editor, and today I'll be talking to Andres Newman. Originally from Brazil, but now living in Spain, Andres was selected by Granta as one of the best of young Spanish language novelists in issue 113. Today we'll be discussing his first full-length novel to be translated into English, The Traveller of the Century. It's an epic that combines the stateliness and fully realised characters of the 19th century novel with the channel-hopping innovations of postmodernism. Set in post-Napoleonic Germany in a town that seems to move about on the map, it is principally a story of two translators who fall in love with each other and also the act of translation itself. We'll begin with a reading in which Hans, the protagonist, talks to an organ grinder. It's a question of having the right touch. Touch is the important thing. Hans, who was toying with the idea of bringing a notebook with him to the cave, persisted. Tell me more. My dear fellow, you talk like a detective. Almost, said Hans. I am a traveller. Well, this is how I see it. Every tune tells a tale, nearly always a sad one. When I turn the handle, I imagine I am the hero of that tale, and I try to feel at one with its melody. But at the same time, it's as if I'm pretending, do you see? No, not pretending. Let's say that even as I'm getting carried away, I have to think about the end of the tune, because I know how it ends, of course, but maybe the people listening don't, or if they do, they've forgotten. That's what I mean by touch. When it works, nobody notices, but when it doesn't, everyone can hear. So, for you, the barrel organ is a box that tells stories, said Hans. Yes, exactly. Goodness, what a way you have of putting things. Playing the barrel organ is like like telling stories around the fire, like you the other night. The tune is already written on the barrel, and it may seem like it's all done for you. A lot of people think you just turn the handle and think of something else. But for me, it's the intention that counts. Just turning the handle isn't the same thing as really applying yourself, do you see? The wood also suffers or is grateful. When I was young, because I was young once, like you, I heard many organ grinders play, and I can assure you, no two tunes ever sounded the same, even on the same instrument. That's how it is, isn't it? The less love you put into things, the more they resemble one another. The same goes for stories. Everyone knows them by heart, but when someone tells them with love, I don't know, they seem new. Well, that's why I think, anyway. The organ grinder lowered his head and began dusting his barrel organ. Hans thought to himself, where did these fellows spring from? It's wonderful. And the organ grinder is a great... Not a wonderful English, but (laughs) (laughs) still. I think charmingly read, actually. And um, one of the things that... I, I was thinking about when you were reading it was the organ grinder is such a central figure and in many ways 
Wardenburg, which is the place where you've you've set this story, which is a sort of metaphorical yeah. town, like a Calvino city that springs up in the middle of Germany in post-Napoleonic times. The town and the organ grinders seem deeply related to me. And Hans says, I think, at one point in the story that he couldn't almost imagine the city without the organ grinder being there and his turning of the handle and the, the stories that spring from his box. Yeah, as if the rhythm of the story mm. and of the city depended on this turning the handle, mm. like the rhythm. Yes, and I, I think that's such a fascinating idea. I, I think it touches on so many important themes in the book about listening. Yes. And the, the importance of listening to stories and listening to the wind, which plays a really vital role here. And the way that you're essentially approaching a 19th century story with a very modern perspective and yeah. showing that actually communities are, are built upon contingency and are built upon these things which are quite ephemeral and fleeting. And yes, the organ grinder seems to be kind of an embodiment of a lot of those those ideas. Would you say that would you say that he's a linchpin there for you? He's a, a linchpin. Um he's that he's a um uh, a central a crucial figure in the story. Oh yes, he is. Well first of all I really liked you you noticed about the wind mm. because it's the main invisible character mm. of the book. Mm. Uh it's um invisible power, strength, mm. like uh, emotions and feelings. Uh, there is, at least in Spanish language, uh, a, a set phrase, mm -hmm. a popular one, who says, maybe in English is the same, I don't know, uh, words are disappeared with the wind or lost with the wind. Mm. In the sense that words are not um, reliable, you know, uh, this stupid idea about uh, one image is equal to 1,000 words like, and words don't remain uh, and go, go, just are gone with the wind. Mm. Which is false because, uh, I mean, we still read, uh, read uh, you know, ancient Greeks who doesn't seem to have been gone with the wind. But the organ grinder takes this idea and says well, this is the, the good thing about words that travel with the wind. So maybe now we can listen to the words that someone has told you never know when. And they're coming uh, to our ears now. So if you just listen carefully, you will, you will listen to other people's words and stories. So this is a relationship between not only talking and telling story, but listening to. And this character, the organ grinder, with his uh, this kind of mystical idea of listening, not to God, but just invisible emotions, came from a Schubert song. Um, the, the the very first idea of the novel was to do a short one, really sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I, I regret it. Uh, it was the idea of building an imaginary biography for two characters of mm. uh, Winter Journey, Winterreise in German, mm -hmm. this maybe the most famous Schubert's um, cycle of songs. Mm. And Winter Journey is about the traveler who 
leaves his house saying just good night, good night, good night, without saying why he's leaving and where he's going. But he leaves to find his house, his way, his path. And in the last of the songs, he meets an organ grinder. And for the very first time in the 24 songs, he thinks, well, maybe this is my place, uh, this music. Mm. And the, song, the songs finish. So I thought about beginning my novel with this encounter between these two characters. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the way the novel begins, because it, it begins with this very frozen carriage ride to Wardenburg, and then I don't want to give too much away about how it ends, but the wind is also significant at the end, and there's this yeah. ex extraordinary long sentence that blows through the whole town. And I think it what it does is it doesn't just carry the characters along, it seems to carry through a lot of other things too, change, and also the influences that you're drawing on here and this is on the outside it seems like a 19th century novel but it's a 19th century novel with a very modern sensibility and with a very unsettling view of its characters in a certain way it doesn't let them off the hook and idealize them like a 19th century novel might you know yeah. these are these are people who have flaws and smell a bit you know there's there's they a go to the bathroom yes they <laughs> They do all kind of dirty things. Yeah, there's a wonderful. As we all do. Yes, and there's a wonderful description of someone picking their nose like it's looking for a jewel. I think, and yeah. there's a character who has lots of explosions at the beginning. Yeah, um, a little boy. A little boy. He loves to do them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot of fun doing these explosions, and I, I, I think that's one of the crucial things about this book: the way that it, it refuses to let these characters just be received 19th century characters that we yeah. might expect it's, it's making them modern and, and living and I, I, I just and also the organ grinder when he has his bath um, in the river when he's um, the fish come up to him because he's so filthy and, and dirty <laughs> I wonder if you, was that was that something you were conscious of when you were writing the book were you were you trying to focus on making these characters real so that they didn't seem like characters we'd met before well the, the whole project of the book was uh, rewriting the 19th century tradition mm. in a contemporary way mm. which implied um, to to uh, put some things about the content uh, and about the style too um, so on one hand uh, I wanted to tell this part of daily life which is never in the classic books you know, uh, it's like um, Emma Bovary uh, on this carriage through the Rouen, the city of Rouen, and he's making love with uh, her lover, but you can't see anything. Well, let's, you know, just move the curtain mm. and let's spy her mm. in a not very decent posture, okay? Mm. So it, it was the, this idea of following the camera, the narrator follows the characters no matter what they're doing. But in the, on the style, there are constantly many resources of the contemporary tradition trying to use all the technical memory of, of uh, uh, 20th century uh, narrative and use them as a tools to retell a classical mm. story. I have always thought that um, sometimes we, we have a limited concept about what 
postmodern postmodern times are. I mean, what is a postmodern novel? Well, it's a very short and fragmentary novel that talks about airports and iPods, right, and television. Which I did. I mean, mm. I have a book about airports <laughs> and, and and self fiction and everything. So I love that, and I, I've got nothing against that. But I do think that postmodern uh, postmodernism is as well uh, how we reread the past, and in in this sense, um, this novel is an attempt to do a postmodern reading of uh, classical novels. Uh, so someone said that it was like uh, a mix between Madame Bovary and Californication. <laughs> I wish that that is true. Um, I think, it, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not as familiar with Californication, but I definitely think that there are these, um, you could call them postmodern techniques that are, that are used here. I mean, there are textual things like the simultaneous speech yeah. and the switches of perspective as well. Um, the, and I mentioned the city of Wardenburg. It feels like there's a Calvino influence there as well, the way that the city is kind of moving around on the map. And and I wonder, is, this feels to me like a very South American novel as well, in the sense that it's got the ambition to take in a word that comes mm -hmm. up in the book, that Welp literature idea, that Goethe idea of embracing all literary traditions and, yeah. and not just embodying one na national or continental yeah, that's it. literature. I don't think that Latin American tradition is forced to talk about Latin America as a subject. Mm. Um, I was very um, uh, very fond of the idea of trying to transplant uh, these uh, mythical cities of Garcia Marquez, mm. Monetti, Rulfo, with those cities called Macondo, um, Comala, mm. Santa Maria, doing the, the same uh, method, but applying it to a more Euro European context, right? So there is a hidden Latin American technique mm -hmm. behind this apparently so European book. Uh, and obviously Calvino was there too. Um, it was interesting on, on a metaphor about Europe, not a just a particular city. That's why I invented the city. I didn't want to talk about Germany. Germany is just an excuse as a nation that has been able to achieve the maybe the better and the and the worst of Western civilization. Mm. Um, uh, and regarding dialogues, uh, yes, indeed, I tried to to put the salon dialogues. Uh, in a radio broadcast way because in 19th century novels when they are telling stories a character stands up and starts talking and everything gets uh, frozen and everybody gets quiet uh, mm. during 20 pages <laughs> and, and he kept saying yeah. uh, you know five more pages so I, I thought it would be uh, fun to to make them speak all, all the characters all at the same time and getting interrupted all the time uh, and that you could see not only the main uh, phrases and sentences of every character but sometimes uh, the, the 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 eye of the narrator gets distracted and f forgets what is the character is saying 
and and is focused you know on a shoe or maybe in a cup of tea mm. and you miss the conversation mm. it's kind of kind of big brother production about the literary salon and the idea was to to create a sensation of simultaneity you say simultaneity yeah. simultaneity yeah. Yeah, even hard not to do that but just to pronounce it <laughs> uh, yes and and that uh, forced me to use in a strange way the punctuation hmm. and the the brackets yes. right because uh, you have to read from left to right yes but uh, i did try to to um to create the sensation that brackets were happening at the same time as the previous character is talking right um and these these uh, resources were an attempt to remind the reader that this is kind of a TV or radio program about those wonderful 19th century novels. There's two things there which I think are really interesting. Which is the first is that there's a kind of impetuosity which I really liked in the in the in the third because it's written in the third person, but it's an incredibly mobile third person. Yeah. As you say, it moves all the way around the story. Um, the dog, for instance, Franz. You, I think you often focus down on. on the dog him. has its uh, joys moment, the stream of consciousness of the dog. Yes, for example. Yeah, I love that bit, and I I think that. Uh, the way that you move around the salon, for instance, I'm, I mean, I'm a great fan of people like Tolstoy, of course, but there are those quite painful scenes in Tolstoy sometimes where it's just static, and as you say, someone's just talking. Yeah. And whereas here, it feels like you're just roving around, you almost have, have a sort of childlike curiosity for what's happening in the room. I like that. Yeah, and childlike I curiosity. Yeah. I wish I wish I was able to do so. I think I, I absolutely think that's it's certainly close to the experience I had when reading it. Um, but I also wanted to mention that y it's interesting that despite the fact that this isn't a historical novel in a, in any kind of obvious sense, mm. you, this is nineteenth-century Germany at the same time, and there's an interesting leap that you've made. You've thrown your voice to this particular point in history, and it seems to me that. It's not that you're saying that look how differently people lived. In fact, often it seems to be showing the similarities and yeah. the the relationship to now, um, mm, the way that people are um, in Europe, is in, in particular, but also in South America as well. The way that our lives have become much more focused upon a kind of broader economic structure than any kind of national structure. I mean, the the borders here are shifting, and as in the national borders are shifting, and that feels to me very closely linked to this roving perspective that you have, and that it feels like a very modern book, would you say? Yes, I wasn't interested at all in reproducing the past, mm. because the past is past, mm. uh, in aesthetic, aesthetical terms. I was much more interested on uh, crafting a, a kind of mirror, uh, odd mirror between two eras that are not so different uh, as we think. And it's kind of si uh, fiction, sci science fiction <laughs> of the past. <laughs> because because the characters don't know that we are watching them and, and thinking uh, in a fragment way, wow, 
those problems are are ours mm. um, and it i think it's the link is mainly the 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 desolation of the utopy mm. i mean in, uh, in political terms i mean uh, we are obviously a generation that generally doesn't don't doesn't believe in, in utopy like a mm. political utopia. solution. Yeah, yeah, utopia. Yes, mm. utopia like a political solution. You know, the, a revolution that lead leads us to the utopia. We generally don't believe in that at all. And and um, this is uh, linked with with the failure of of you know a sixty eight uh, thing and and the, the the horrible result of uh, orthodox communism, etc., etc. Right. So. The first time that this happened in, in, in the modern Western world was after French Revolution and after Bonaparte. Mm. Bonaparte promised a revolution to the world um, that would lead it to the, to the utopia. 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 Yeah. <laughs> and he became an emperor mm. and a, and a totally Totalitarian. totalitarian. Oh my God! This English is becoming. <laughs> You're harder. picking some tricky words. <laughs> oh my God! Yes, I, I have to to say just hey man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he he became a totalitarian leader, mm. and that allowed Europe uh, to 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 do a, a conser conservative move mm. that lasted almost half a century. Right. And I have the strong sensation that we are on that point now. Mm. You know, after Berlin Wall. Everybody seems to be sure that there's nothing serious we can do about the status quo, mm. and uh, so there are some similar similar uh, similarities <laughs> similarities <laughs> here. Uh, for example, the Europe of Restoration mm -hmm. was uh, hugely interested on um, sharing uh, trades and and commercial interests, uh, and, you know, doing business in common. Mm -hmm. And the, the more they did business together, the less um, r social rights they allowed against the French Revolution. And now it's in incredible how in the last, you know, five or ten years, we stopped talking about European constitution mm. um, and about what could could be the political project in common, and we only talk about uh, money and and uh, economic. So uh, it, that was the Europe or of restoration, a Europe that had a common army, mm -hmm. sharing the army, uh, just to avoid any possible revolution anywhere. Uh, they they uh, try to delete borders just for business, not for rights. Mm. And they were terrified about the idea of changing the general situation. And this happened in the Europe of Restoration too, uh, these post-utopic times. Um, so, so when I do the research, did the research uh, for the book, I realized that maybe this time, in terms of political European Union thing, was not the past, but the, the beginning of the present. Hmm. So interesting. I want to talk a little bit after we do the second reading about um, the role of women and how that was changing at this particular time because Sophie in the book is obviously very, very strong yeah. and she comes from 
the same generation as Mary Wollstonecraft and that first generation of post-French Revolution feminists. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe we should go to the second reading. Um, you mentioned a little s- a while ago uh, Emma Bovary in the carriage and how we don't get to see her with her skirt up. <laughs> yeah. But I think that um, one of the wonderful things about this book is that you definitely do. <laughs> and you definitely do get to see um, a kind of a real tender and um, not idealised sexual relationship. Yeah, that's which it. Which um, I was. Um, I wanted Nema Bovary or Anna Karenina without punishment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, if we could, if we could uh, do that second reading now, that'd mm. be great. This is the very first moment in which, in the half of the book, the reader is supposed to be expecting this moment because they finally go to bed mm-hmm. after you know half a book of very careful. Uh, moves like uh, Jane Austen's novel mm. so this should be the m- most romantic moment mm-hmm. and this is what happens actually mm. Sophie's slender hands read rather than caressed she noticed Hans was trying not to be rough with her and was moved she didn't need this gentle treatment he found her body looser than he'd anticipated. He noticed how she led him on, how sophisticated and unchildlike her responses were. Sophie thought him supple without being strong. She guessed at rather than glimpsed the muscle beneath his slender frame. They began to undress with all the awkwardness of people who are not performing. Their skins gave off a not altogether clean smell. Their desire opened like a valve. Hans had perched on the edge of the bed. Sophie stood looking at him, hands behind her back, fumbling with the last laces. As he sat waiting, shoulders sloped, back hunched, a few unbecoming folds pushed their way in around his midriff. The insides of her tights had a hollowed-out droopiness to them. Hans' toes were rather stubby. Sophie had rough patches on her elbows. A few misplaced hairs sprouted from Hans' nav- navel. As Sophie's dress loosened, it revealed slightly sagging breasts veins that seemed to radiate from nipples scored with teeny stretch marks. And every new imperfection they discovered in each other made them more real, more desired to one another. And after this skirt, I remember that, well, they do all kind of dirty things, we wonder it in a perverse, you know, strategy, commercial strategy. Now, to sum up, but at the end they say, after everything happens, they looked at one another again before getting dressed. At last, Sophie spoke. I love your knee, she said, leaning forward and running her tongue over it. Hans felt a flash of shame go up his leg and turned to joy when it, re- it reached his head. All of a sudden, he noticed Sophie's tyke. 
the part of her tie that had an elongated blemish as if drawn by a pencil on it. And I love your mark, he replied. I hate my mark, she said, covering her leg. But Hans insisted, your mark enhances you. You're lucky to have it. It's wonderful. I I, I think that you've done something really remarkable. Sorry for my phonetic, but no, we have. <laughs> it's warts and all. It's wonderful. It's like the sex scene, you know. It's your mark enhances you, Andres. So I yeah, think those <laughs> awkwardness that they talk about is uh, it involves the narrator yeah. <laughs> this time. <laughs> um, but I think what's so wonderful here is that these these two characters are translators. Just for those who yes. who haven't read the book. And I think that what you show here is that translation is, in many ways, it's a kind of a bodily act. And you certainly make translation in the book seem very sexy, <laughs> you know, but in a, in a very, um, there's a serious point there, I think, which is that you're moving between worlds, between languages, and yes. the borders between people are breaking down and becoming porous. Absolutely. And I think what's so compelling and moving about the relationship between these two characters is that the more real they become and the more disheveled and human and flawed they become, the more that conversation that they're having with their bodies, but also through the poetry that they're translating, yes, comes I, to life. Yes, I agree with that uh, summary of translation as the heart of the novel. Because in a way, it's translation uh, from 19th century to 21st century, from Latin American tradition mm. to European tradition, mm. from um, uh, you know um, past and present, and from one language to others, because they are, as you point out, translators. They don't know that when they met, uh, they meet at the beginning of the book, but they immediately begin to translate one another uh, until they find they are translators and step by step uh, their relationship involves the idea that translating it's an act of love and loving is an act of translation in the sense that um, loving someone is um, trying to put the other person's words in my words, trying to understand you and misunderstand you too, uh, trying to learn your language um, and being sure that our differences, sexual, political, uh, age, etc., will be a filter. But as well, we can develop a bridge between your language and mine. And on the other hand, uh, translating uh, implies to fall in love with the text have desire for it and want to possess this text and have a kind of intimacy with it um, and in a way it's a sentimental exchange between someone else maybe who is dead you don't know but someone else and you uh, and and this relationship between translating and loving it's very becoming more and more clear uh, with Sophie and Hans. And that leads me to the, the other thing you mentioned before reading the excerpt, mm. which is uh, the gender part of, of the book, which is a very strong one, I think, very important one for the story. 
because after French Revolution, yes, we, we, we find the first generation of women that we could call uh, feminist. The, the, the origins of, of feminism obviously could be found uh, after the Enlightenment, you say? Uh, in English? The revolution? Well, the French Revolution. No, the, the oh, sorry, yes, the Enlightenment. The yeah. Enlightenment is yeah. in English, yes. So, so be because the French Revolution uh, educated a generation of women that on one hand uh, they got the ideas of enlightenment and on the other hand they found that this revolution was only for men so mm. les droits de l'homme mm. uh, uh, it turned out to be the droit de les hommes uh, just right of men not mankind so this generation of women had to struggle with uh, the revolution that in a way allowed her allowed them to 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 have this idea so there was uh, a tension and, and a strong battle and is the generation yes as you said of mary shelley it's very interesting to remember that mary shelley uh, was the daughter of mary wollstonecraft the author of a vindication of right of women even more interesting is to remember that this text this vindication was published just two or three years later than the rights of of uh, mankind or men rights of man yeah. rights of man mm. only two or three years so mm. she immediately realizes <laughs> that mankind and men were not uh, the same thing mm. in, in terms of philosophical uh, things and that French Revolution was a was a male revolution right so this generation was so important for the development of uh, intellectual process in, in in Europe and for nowadays it's the genera generation of Georges Saint uh, in in France or Sophie Merot in um, in Germany or it's the generation of as we said the other night uh, <laughs> during the the launch um, Arthur Schopenhauer's mother <laughs> was a free thinker and um, a very sexual woman who was a wi widow yes <laughs> so she she had to to earn her own money and she was the first woman in history of western culture i think that could put her name in her own books and earning money without you know a, um, a false name or something a pseudonym yeah 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 mm. and 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 this woman who put her lovers in her own salon and who was very uh, famous woman gave birth to the most um, misogynist misogynist <laughs> <laughs> philosopher in in modern times which I think that uh, sums up very well the terrible context uh, w with which uh, free women had to to struggle with um, in those times. So the character of Sophie in the novel, she's an imaginary character as all are, because in this book there is nothing uh, real or nothing directly taken from documented history. But still Sophie is, is uh, inspired in all these extraordinary women that belong to the first feminist generation you know the the, the grandmothers of, of Virginia Woolf we could say they they had no uh, uh, a room for 
her own, mm. but they have a, a mind for her own, mm. of her own, her own. It's interesting you mention Mary Shelley as well, because Sophie seems to me, in the best way, seems to me a kind of Frankenstein-like figure in that she's a combination of those different strong women. Absolutely, um, yes. And I, I think there are those wonderful scenes when she has a salon, like Sophie, the, um, the, the character, the, uh, the lady you were describing. And there are these wonderful moments when she's interested in cultivating debate and holding debate. And the gentleman will sometimes sort of turn to her and say, you know, what do you think? And she'll start by saying, oh, I'm just a woman. I, I can possibly know anything about this. And then just <laughs> completely takes them apart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's clearly, um, she's absolutely no fool. And I don't want to give too much away, but her blossoming as a translator is something that's very important in the novel uh, yes. and towards the end and I just I think it's very hard not to fall in love with her basically I think as a as a female character and it comes across that strength which I think isn't something you might immediately associate with the 19th century but actually it's it's very it's it was a reality they were living through yes um, I read very carefully the the letters that those European uh, intellectual women wrote to their husbands and most of them were poets too they were kind of elite elite, elite. there were not common women of course we're talking about an elite but because most of women couldn't elite, even elite, sorry. elite couldn't sorry. even read you know but the problems haven't changed uh, but this problem have spread to all the workers, worker women, okay, but the, the kind of conflict were the same because in those letters, um, for example, Sophie Merot, which is, uh, as I mentioned, the first professional translator in, in Germany and whose name I took for my character, uh, wrote a letter to Clemens Brentano, the very famous uh, German poet who was younger than her, which is another Mm -hmm. thing to mention. These, these were women who had younger lovers uh, and they used to marry them for second time. So they were like women trying to uh, let another more more traditional way of life uh, behind. Okay? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and these letters were saying things like, well please come back home um, dear husband because I'm so so busy here and he replies well I'm reading conferences in, in universities you know and I, I, I have so many commitments here I, I would like to go back home but I can't at the moment and she and she replied I perfectly understand you because I'm trying to translate the fucking Homer or you know or, or you know the Greeks or the, 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 the Greek philosophers so I do do understand what you say but the children don't allow me to to work on this mm. and 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 in the next letter she said I wonder why on earth why, why the hell I had children mm. I hate them mm. And immediately after that, say, "Oh, please, God, forgive me for saying this. I don't deserve these children. I'm an evil mother." So, these women had this very specific uh, conflict, female conflict, uh, which is feeling frustrated if they 
gave time to their families and feeling guilty if they don't mm. and they 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 work on their vocation mm. so there was a tension between uh, frustration and, and and guilt and and I was really shocked when I read these letters mm. and I thought well maybe then it was you know just a hundred of women thinking about this and now millions but the nature of this conflict hasn't improved so much um, I just want to quickly ask you before we close with the reading um, about the noir elements in the novel or you could say the sort of sinister elements and I think you write sinister officials really unsettlingly well um, that description of the man with the um, teeth that clack when he's speaking yeah. and, and hands the the main character of the novel spends a horrible night in prison at one point. Yes. There's, there's also the um, the rapist character who's kind yeah. of marauding through Wardenberg, yeah. and he he appears periodically through the novel, and he's a very disturbing figure. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that I mean it's related to what we were just saying about empowered women and that tension that they're experiencing for the first time between liberty and um, and confinement or suppression and I think that of threatening yeah of threatening and it feels like he's actually preying on that sort of new vulnerability that they that they're experiencing and I w it just seemed like a really a dark scene coming through the novel it, it it certainly reminded me of of that we were reading a contemporary novel as well I don't think that you'd find that in the 19th century? Well, I, I wish that's true. Um, in a way, I was trying to, to imagine a television called 19th century yeah. and changing all the time the <laughs> channels, right? So you have uh, the uh, first channel is Gothic one. Gothic? Gothic. Yeah. Gothic mm. one. Uh, in Spanish, we say Gotico. The mm. Gothic one with those characters. That sounds much better. <laughs> foreign, foreign things always sound better. better. <laughs> <laughs> and that's I'm sure, no, I believe about. it. You know, yeah. Last night we said, yes, uh, what is poetry about is turning your mother tongue in a foreign language mm. with the strangeness uh, it implies. So, so yes, I'm sure I prefer Gothic and you prefer Gothic. But when the book begins, it's mm. um, it's a Gothic moment. Uh, you change the channel immediately, and you have a love story. You change the channel, and it's a epistolary, epistolary, epistolary uh, novel right. with letters. Okay, yeah. Uh, you change mm. the channel, and it's um, uh, ideas novel. Know, discussing right. politic, philosophical, and aesthetic problems, translation, literature, blah blah blah. You change the channel, and it's a kind of um, uh, Jack the Ripper moment. Yeah. But but immediately you change the channel. So I was trying to to change fastly of mood mm. uh, within a structure much more slow and classic. So it's a kind of as you said at the beginning. Um, it's a classic structure with uh, contemporary things inside, uh, like putting an helicopter inside the carriage and see if the carriage 
start flying mm -hmm. or maybe just the helicopter uh, turns slower you don't know mm -hmm. but that was the experiment yes um and i forgot completely completely the, the the first part of your commentary i love that changing channel metaphor because i think that's that's so perfectly what it is you have oh the, the dark part I yeah that i wanted to ask about the, the yes yes so so i try to combine all the time um philosophy and body mm. poetry and dirtiness strong contrast right to to lose this uh, idea of decency of the classic novels, you know, that something shouldn't be done. Okay, so do anything you want. So so yes, and there are many bright and happy moments. And so therefore, I needed very sinister and even violent moments. You know, you know, to in order to keep this contrast. Um, but but to me the. Mo the most important thing about it, it, it was when when uh, ideas and body were together mm. I don't know if you remember the moment in which um, Sophie is having demonstration yes I do which is uh, I think yeah. it's a thing uh, to that deserved uh, a little thought because nowadays even nowadays in the books it's really hard mm. to, to read about menstruation mm. uh, except in a funny or uncomfortable you know, right. uh, uh, tone as if uh, nervous laughter. You know, oh. yeah. But but if you if you watch a movie, for example, a very cool one, girls they never get the menstruation in the right uh, night. For example, you know, and and people doesn't want to go to the bathroom in a in a bad moment. So they they are not bodies; they are just plots. Okay, so there is a moment in which Sophie is uh, going upstairs and she feels clearly how the menstruation is coming down and she says well this is the first time this happened with hands I don't know what he will think and he, um, and she's not very sure about what to do she finally gets into the room and they make love with menstruation which is all, uh, as well described and after that Sophie remembers what Kant said about um, bastard uh, children, bastard sons, mm -hmm. okay, um, and she thinks about abortion, okay, because Sophie wants to have children but doesn't want to be a mother, mm. which is a very, <laughs> um, very contemporary conflict. I think many women now uh, like children but that doesn't want to, don't want to play the role of the mother with everything that that implies of you know sacrificing your own project etc so they start talking about um, um, motherness motherhood motherhood and mm. fatherhood and children and everything mm. through men menstruation accident and and she finally gets this idea of Kant who said that you know the, the fair Kant said that those bastard children could be perfectly killed because they were not according to law and right. what only matters here is is to to live according to law and this, so these children didn't really exist so they could be killed without any problem so this atrocious conclusion uh, using the reason you know and Hans you know keeps lying there and says Kant and menstruation 
and he he says why not <laughs> so this is uh, the, the the final idea why not mixing these two elements I, I remember that scene very vividly but particularly because it's the one of the only times when they have sex and they don't have to to be graphic pull out because it's the moment when she she can't conceive and so it's and also the moment when she thinks oh my god um he's really not going to understand this and it's one of those moments where you 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 always want there to be between the two lovers i suppose as, as little distance as possible yeah. and it's actually a moment where you feel like actually there could be and that when it bridges that as you say it creates a it creates a kind of intellectual baby if you like it creates yes. this idea these ideas that come from it and that i feel like is such a great example of the kinds of conversations that they're having and the way that translation is so central and bodily in the book as to what i was i think trying to ask earlier the way that um their bodily relationship has a kind of poetic um offspring yes because translation is not only about the text but it's a way of uh, being in the world or a way of trying to understand the world uh, translation as uh, emotional intellectual and physical process so the, the the narration is very focused on this idea since the very first moment they meet um, we could say that the love story has two two halves and the first half is very uh, cautious and classic and the second half is much more dirty and and and, and um, we would say uh, realistic from our terms mm. contemporary terms and um, or or you know or, or naughty or whatever you like and mm. the first time they meet she begins to move uh, her fan right I studied the absurd book about fans in the 19th century which is, is something that I would have never imagined to do you know it's just I was writing we about airports and iPods and I and I would never have imagined to study fans but I found interesting the the mute language that was working uh, on ancient times about fans and it was very important because uh, women were constantly surrounded by, by men for example they fathers or their husbands or whatever and they, they couldn't just talk mm. so there was a hidden language uh, with the fans and I said well um, if I use the, the kind of cinema technique to, to focus focus only on the fan so suddenly the first time they meet with Sophie's father in the middle um, the only thing you can see is her fan responding to what he says apparently to her father but everything he says is just addressed hiddenly addressed to her and she moves the fan in different ways and Hans begins to translate the movements of the fan trying to find out what she thinks even when she doesn't talk so so I try very hard to put the translation conflict in every scene even when the characters are not talking at all about literature and of course there are as well very literary uh, moments about translation because we didn't mention yet but 
they try to do an impossible and absurd and marvelous anthology of Western poetry, mm. especially European romantic poetry. Their dream is to get a huge book of all the best poems of the best poets of Europe, and it's a kind of uh, how do you say utop um, utopic kind of U project, utopic yeah. project mm. uh, bound to fail, but still that that was worth. So so they they translate a bit from English, from French, from Italian, from Portuguese, from Spanish, and and that. Uh, game allowed me in fact to talk about my favorite poets mm. uh, and and it's funny because d during the translation process they touch each other and sometimes they stop to fuck a bit mm. and sometimes Hans is not sure if it's better to to have a fuck first and after that uh, translating so so you translate uh, relieved or if maybe the desire the sexual tension could help to find the precise word. So it's a theory about what's better, sex verse and translation after She favours it, translation first, right? And he, the other way around, I think, that's pretty That's a gender <laughs> theory, yeah. too, because, yeah. you know, Hans, as a man, uh, would prefer to go straight to sex and after that, more relaxed, yeah. to go to the intellectual part. And Sophie, uh, more often, thinks this desire not yet uh, conquered mm. could be stimulating from the linguistical point of view. Um, I just want to, we have to run, wind up in a minute, unfortunately, um, but I just want to ask you about the letters that they send back and forth, which are almost sometimes are so short, they're almost like text messages. And there's yeah. talking about bodily translations when you were talking about the fan, and that's such an erotic scene when she's mm. just playing with that thing and kind of alluring him and sort of signaling. Um, yeah, how close of eyes from her mouth and everything. Right, and it's so precisely drawn. And I think um, there's a there's a letter that she sends to him, just one line. I think it's it says something along the lines of, um, "Why were you looking at me like that?" And he responds very kind of nonchalantly, "I don't know what you mean." But there's this how is like that? Yeah, what yeah. do you mean like that? And and she says, "You know exactly what, you know." she knows without actually stating it in the letter she knows exactly the way that he was looking at her and there is this sense of wanting to unravel these kind of bodily secrets if you like these physical um, languages that yeah. exist between them and um, maybe this is a good time to turn to the the final reading but okay um no that's beautiful what you said i i wouldn't want to spoil that with no <laughs> anything else because I, th I think, in fact, that you explain much, much better than me the book. I mean, you're a br brilliant reader. Thank you. Oh, thank you. No, I, I don't. I. It's a pleasure talking to you. I. There was, there was actually one other letter as well, which I wanted to just mention, which is that we're talking about that distance between them, and mm. there's this beautiful love letter towards the end where he describes the bridge between them, the bridge of words, I think, yeah. and. Um, and then when she's coming, he describes, when she's coming to visit him, um, he describes hearing the bridge shake. Shaking and trembling. Shaking yes. and trembling. And it's just it's such an electrifying moment, um, that sense of journeying between one another. Um, but thank you so much for... No, thank you, thank you. That's, that's beautiful. And that bridge now has someone crossing it. <laughs> so this is a very short uh, paragraph about um, 
the love story during translation process and the translation story during the love. During the four hours they spent alone three times a week, Hans and Sophie alternated between books and bed, bed and books, exploring one another in words and reading one another's bodies. Thus, inadvertently, they developed a shared language, rewriting what they read, translating one another mutually. The more they worked together, the more similarities they discovered between love and translation, understanding a person and translating a text, retelling a poem in a different language and putting into words what the other was feeling. Both exercises were as happy as they were incomplete. Doubts always remained, words that needed changing, missed nuances. They were both aware of the impossibility of achieving transparency as lovers and as translators. Cultural, political, biographical and sexual differences acted as a filter. The more they tried to counter them, the greater the dangers, obstacles, misunderstandings. And yet, at the same time, the bridges between the languages, between them, became broader and broader. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to spoil English language with you. Thank you for listening and join us next time on the Grunter Podcast.